Well, good morning, church. Uh, we're hi. <laughs> scared me a little bit. Um, well, good morning. Uh, we are continuing, and we're going to wrap up actually this morning our series, "Living in the Light of His Return." Um, and, and it made me think. Weirdly, it made me think of vacation, and I, I love obviously vacation like all of us do. Um, but there was a part to me that it, it, I just thinking about it, it, that determines whether the vacation is a good vacation or not. And, and to me, it's this: it's that you've been gone for a, whatever time period it might be, and uh, you start getting this feeling where you're like, man. I just, it might, it usually hits me on like the drive home, you know, and it's like, I just can't wait to get home. And then you, you, you even get this, maybe it's a homesick feeling. You're just like, you finally pull in the driveway and it's like, it feels so good to be home. And, and I think a little bit, like, I think eternity might feel a little bit like that for us because I think there is truly no place like home. And, and the writer of Hebrews said it like this, for here we do not have a lasting city, a lasting home, but we are seeking the city, the home, which is to come. See, here, here's the thing. When we start thinking about the, 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 our eternal state in eternity in heaven our home it should bring hope like when we start when we're in the series living in the light of his return we should have hope because we we get to look forward to the the what Jesus told us he he has to go away and he had to go and create a home for us this hope this dream this heaven it's not a dream, even though a lot of people will just kind of approach eternity, heaven, as just figuratively. I, not really real. Heaven for believers, it's not a dream. It's better than a dream. It can be our reality. And so that's what we're going to spend most of our morning talking about is what is heaven? Uh, who's going to be there? And then uh, what, what we might find ourselves doing in that eternal state. Uh, but before we kind of get there, Pastor Kevin kind of left us with where we were in the millennium last week. And, and so if you remember, right before the millennium, there's a battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And in that battle... Uh, Jesus is described coming back through the clouds and with him is going to be an army. Something I think is pretty cool is that that army there is going to be us. Like we're going to get to be a part of this. He, we come back with Jesus. He wins. Satan is bound and then Jesus sets up his eternal state. But in that battle, there's, there's going to be believers who 
have never faced death on this earth or they, were, they were, went through the tribulation period so they became believers in that period of time and they're gonna carry over into this millennial kingdom where Jesus is reigning literally on earth for a thousand years. And so it's gonna be kind of weird because we're gonna be there as believers who have been raised with with Christ. We're gonna be raptured, we're gonna be given glorified bodies. And so we have been given bodies that are able to last forever, so we're immortal. But there's gonna be mortal also there. It's gonna be kind of weird. And those mortal will have kids and they'll, they'll be able to face death. We're there reigning with God for a thousand years. So what does that, that millennium kind of period look like? Isaiah gives us a better image of that in Isaiah 65, verse, starting in verse 20, where it says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build in another inhabit. They will not plant in another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands, and they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf And the lamb, they will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Did you catch a few things there? One, because Jesus is reigning on this earth, there's going to be less evil. Let's sin. We're there and we're immortal. We're not going to be, we have been given glorified bodies. The ability to sin, we won't have anymore. So that takes away a large group of people who won't be sinning. But Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He brings peace on earth for this thousand years, and, 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 and it's told, because there's less sin, the, the lifespan of those mortals, they will live longer. So the fact that we're saying, at 100, it will be like their youth. They'll be young. The wolf, it will lay down on the lamb. They're gonna be friends. The, the lion is gonna eat straw like an ox. That's going to be a pretty weird, crazy time. And for those kind of would say, are we just doing the same old stuff all of eternity? Well, this already shows us that's not true. We're going back. We're, we're going to find ourselves, which is kind of a weird picture and weird to think about. We're going to find ourselves back on earth once again. Reigning with him for that thousand years. And, and it, 
makes me go, okay, if that's going to happen in the future and, and, and it brings a better, what sounds like a better society, life, people's lives, they're going to be living longer. Like why, why not now? Like why, why does Jesus not come back right now and reign like that right now? Well, that's why we're, we're given an answer to that. And it's because that's why Satan is released at the end of this thousand years. To show us something. And it shows us in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7, where it says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. This is the second Gog and Magog. This is the final battle. And it says, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, what this shows, why, did, why does God not just start and reign now on earth? Why doesn't he just make a better society on, on earth now? Because that's not the answer. The reason Satan is released is because it shows the total banked up condition of people. Us. Even as Jesus is reigning on earth for a thousand years, bringing peace. As soon as Satan is released, what do they do? They buy into the same lie every single one of us buy into. I want to be in control. I want to rule. And so rather than worshiping Jesus, rather than serving him as king, they go to war against him. The final battle, Gog and Magog, and after that battle, and Satan and his army is wiped out, we will, will enter the eternal, what we would call the eternal state. And so it, here's where Revelation 20 continues, and, and we see for unbelievers, they will enter their eternal state, uh, and right before that, they will stand in front of God at the great white throne judgment. And, and so you might say, why is it the great white throne? It's great because it's, it's God's throne. It's white because it symbolizes his purity, his holiness, his righteousness. It's where he's going to judge rightfully. Judge people on the account that they have rejected him. And after he has found them guilty 
And he's going to do that. What we're told is in Revelation 20, there's going to be several books that will be open. And, and some would say that they, might, they have different speculation on what those might be. One, they maybe think that one's going to be the Bible. To show that, that here's God's plan all along. Here's his love story for people. And how he went, came, died. And he always has been pointing to this event of his death and resurrection. That there was a way out and they rejected it. And, and then some would say that another book might be the, the, all of their actions. So that in this courtroom that they, they, there's, there's, they're found guilty. It's going to be plain. It's going to be very clear. And then there's a third book that's described in Revelation 20 as the, the Lamb's book of life. We're in it. They won't find their names. The only, the only names in the, that book of life are, are those are believers. And so because their name isn't written in the book of life, and because they have been found guilty of rejecting God, he will say, okay, because you rejected me and this precious thing I've given you, life, I've given you that, that time to make this decision of who you want to serve because you have rejected me. Depart from me. And that departure is, is for all e eternity. It will spend their, the, forever in hell, separated from God, which the Bible describes as a place of complete torment and torture forever. That's the eternal state of what it will look like for an unbeliever. But for the, a believer, our eternal state looks different. Revelation 21, it, it says, describes what our eternal state will be like. In, in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Just like Jesus said when he left the earth that he had to go create a home for us, here, here's, here's the home. He's creating a new heaven and a new earth for us. You know, so when we picture that, like, what, what heaven is going to be like, well, what heaven's going to be like is earth 2.0. It's going to be pretty unique. But then John when he's getting this revelation from God, allowing, allowing him to see what heaven is like, he gives us more of a description in the next few verses. And he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So here's the city. It's coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. It's this unique relationship that we're going to be able to experience with God. 
It's like, if you remember back in Genesis, before there was any sin, before there was a curse, because of that sin, Adam had this unique relationship with God where he was able to walk with God and he was able to talk with God. And so John's going, hey, you know what? Everything is going to be right. In, this, in, in our eternal home, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be made right. Uh, we're going to be given glorified bodies where we're, we're getting to enjoy that on this new heaven, new earth. And God is going to dwell with us. We're going to be able to walk with God, talk with God. And then John keeps going, describing, hey, this is what this eternal home is going to look like. And he tells us what God actually does, the first thing that action God does in heaven where he says in verse 4, And he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then it goes on and says, And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. I think it's kind of funny how God, that God is telling John to write. He's like, hey, John, write. Just keep writing. Write this down. They can take this to the bank. They can count on this. This is my promise. This is faithful and true. I promise that in this new heaven, new earth, it's going to be new. What heaven is like? It's going to be new, and I'm going to dwell there with them. I'm going to be in their presence. They're going to be able to see me face to face. And not only that, I will come to them, wiping every tear from their eyes. It's like an image of a dad. When, when a dad and their kid is running to them, and, and they're bawling, and the dad r- grabs them, right? And what does the, what would the dad do? They, they wipe away the tears and say, everything's going to be okay. Why? Because they're safe. Why? Because they're in, the, in dad's arms. But John's like, hey, I'm writing this down. I'm trying to give you a picture of what heaven is like. God's going, everything's going to be Okay. In this new heaven, new earth, where I'm going to dwell with you. And you're going to see me face to face. I will make all things new. All the things that you know now on earth, they're going to be passed away. They're going to be done away with. So there's never going to be another day where you hear the words, the cancer is back. There's never going to be another time where you hear, hey, we're going to have to let you go. And you have to go home and you have to tell your family that you've lost your job. There won't be any back pain. There won't be any knee pain. We've been given glorified bodies. 
ones that are able to last for all of eternity that will no, no longer ever again feel pain or suffering. Because we're in his presence. And in his presence, what we're told in Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And when we're in God's presence, there's going to be the fullness of joy. We won't be lacking anything. In the right hand, in his hand, there are going to be pleasures forever. Joy. Unlimitless. It's hard to imagine, right? Because all maybe we kind of know is a broken world with disaster, with pain, with hurt. To bring hope to the church, God gives us this revelation. He lets us see what heaven is like to help us realize heaven, what we get to look forward to, what we can maybe become homesick for. It's a place that in his presence will face, feel the fullness of joy, will have pleasures forever. What God promises is that heaven is beyond our imagination. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, but just as it is written, things which our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So all those feelings of feeling insignificant, removed. All the struggle, the battle, the depression, you'll never battle again. The anxiety is removed. When I hear all the time from students, desire to be in a relationship, find their, the one, you know, to be, in another way they, they're saying that is they want to be filled. But that will be removed. That will be so foreign to us be, because we're going to be whole. We're going to be perfected, glorified, given glorified bodies where we'll never feel like we're not enough. Again, we'll never struggle with our purpose or our meaning. Again, for all of eternity, we're going to be understanding the fullness of joy. Every single second will lead to more satisfaction than the last second. Like, you know how there's things that we do uh, and, and we go, hey, that, that brought me life. It may, it may, that, that, whatever it might be, it brings me joy. Man, I feel complete when I'm, when I'm doing whatever it might be. Every single second in eternity in our new home is like that. Every single second. It will be one moment where we feel like, I, I am so 
joyful right now. I feel so complete. I feel so satisfied. The next second will feel that that feeling will be even greater than the last. Continuously for all of eternity, that is what heaven is like. Why? Because we're in his presence. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. So we get to look forward to that, that second coming. But we, we this time of year, we, we're really good at focusing on his first coming, right? We, it's Christmas time. You got Hallmark on 24-7. Awful. I just created enemies. I shouldn't have said that. But at this time of year, what do we do? We start shopping, right? We start baking. We start decorating. We start putting up a tree, wrapping presents. All decent, good stuff. All stuff that can be honoring to God. But with all that effort to observe his first coming, which we should, do we miss how we should live in light of his return, his second coming. See, the stakes are, are, are way higher, right, for his second coming. It's, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about forever. What's scary is that there's a lot of people who celebrate Christmas, but they miss out on the whole reason he came in the first place. And so they go live their, their whole life and they almost, they, they waste their life. Not almost, they do. They waste their life because they have never got prepared for his second coming. They were never ready for eternity. The Bible describes two destinations, hell and heaven, as our eternal states. How do we know where we'll spend it? How do we know we'll spend eternity in heaven? John goes on in Revelation 21. He says, then in verse six, then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So how do you know you'll spend eternity in heaven? John tells us. He goes, one, you need to be thirsty. Verse six, I will give to the one who thirsts. Are, are you... Do you have you come to a point in your life where you've recognized you have a need? You're desperate for a savior. Two, you've accepted the free gift. So back to verse six, I will give without cost the one who's thirsty, the one who's desperate. Third thing that John mentions here is he who overcomes. So how do you know you spend eternity in heaven? If you're thirsty, you acknowledge your need for a savior, you become desperate for that, you've accepted the free gift, and you've overcome, or, or other translations say victorious there. 
So how do you know if you're an overcomer or you're victorious? Well, you've been called a child, son, daughter of God. Well, how do you know if you're a son or a daughter of God? Well, you've been adopted into his family. But John, he, he tells us he, there's some that are overcomers or victorious. And th- for those, they'll inherit the kingdom. They got the keys. But for others, they're, they're the cowardly, the unbelieving. They're the, they're the idolaters. They're the liars. They're, they've worshipped other things besides God. They've served other things, putting other things above God. Their part, for their wages, because of their sin, they will take part in the second death. They'll, they'll be destined to spend eternity in hell. That's what Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift that Jesus is offering to you is eternal life. Well, we, we, we want to spend eternity with God, but how do we know? How do every single one of us, we, fit, we might find ourselves fitting into verse 8. I've, I've served other things besides God. How do I, how can I be guaranteed? How can I be sure that I'll spend eternity in heaven? As Paul says in verse, in, to the church in Corinth in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. You were known as all those things. But you were washed. You became desperate for Jesus. You were sanctified. You've accepted the free gift that he's offering to you. You were justified. You were declared righteous by God. You became an overcomer, victorious. You became a son, daughter of God because you've been adopted into his family. Not by anything you've done, but because it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So who spends, who will find themselves spending eternity in heaven? The one who thirsts, has become desperate. The one who's accepted the free gift that only Jesus is offering. The one who's overcome. And then fourthly, later in Revelation 21, verse 27, he says, and nothing unclean. This is why we need to be washed and cleansed, forgiven. And no one who practice abomination and lying shall ever come into it, will ever come into that eternal home. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question is, how do I know if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you overcome? Are you victorious? Well, I, I think so. You know, I hope so. You know, it, uh, that's what I think a lot of people say. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty sure I am. Like, I try to do all this stuff for God. Well, there's a problem with that. Because Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, when they're standing in front of me at that great white throne judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this stuff in your name? But he, he says, I will say to them, I will look to them. And I'll say, I'll, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
So it's not just good enough to say, I, I believe in a God. I believe that there's a God. Even It's not even good enough to say, I, I, I think Jesus died for me. There's a lot of people who just, they acknowledge Jesus, but they don't really serve him. And, and here's why I think that's the case. Because they've said, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm in with the, Jesus. I like him. He's a good guy. But they never became desperate enough to cry out to him and say, God, I have nothing to offer. I got nothing to bring to the table. I, I'm desperate for you and only you. Have you accepted the gift? How, how do you know you've overcome? Because you've accepted the free gift. How do you know if you've accepted the free gift? Because you became desperate and cried out to God, not taking your accomplishments to him. Not saying, God, I, I've done all this stuff. That's the, it doesn't matter. This is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't matter what you, your past looks like. Anybody is welcome to come to Jesus if you're desperate for him. And you acknowledge your need. You admit to him. You turn to God. You cry out to him. And you admit to him, I'm broken. I'm a sinned against you. I need you. I believe that's the whole reason you came to die on the cross for me is to, to provide a way for me to be forgiven, to be made new. So I confess, I want you to come to be the Lord over my life. Have you cried out to God in desperation, asking for forgiveness? For those of us that have, we get to spend eternity with him in the fullness of his presence. So what will we do? We're told this in Revelation 22. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side, of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. There's a few things. The curse will be no longer. Sin will no longer be there. Then it says, what we're going to do, we're going to be his bondservants, serving him. And so for some of us, we might go, wait, I, that's not when I pictured heaven. It wasn't going to be a bunch of work. Why, that, you're telling me, the Bible's saying, hey, in heaven, we're going to work? Yeah. 
But the work that we understand now, remember, he, Jesus said, hey, all the things on this earth that we presently know, we're going to pass away. So work, what does that work look like? Well, our work, is, it can be toilsome, it can be tiring, it can be unfulfilling at moments, right? The work that he has for us is only fulfilling. So what, is, what kind of work might we see ourselves doing? The very end, it says, and they will reign forever and ever. So what kind of work he had for us? We're going to rule with God forever and ever. Which says something. God has not created you. He hasn't created me. He hasn't created us for insignificant things. He's created us to rule. And he's created us to worship. We're going to find ourselves working ruling in eternity. We're going to find ourselves worshiping, which isn't just singing. We're going to do singing. But worship is everything. Worship, we're going to be worshiping him by existing for eternity. And it won't get boring because that curse is gone. We're going to be in the fullness of his presence for eternity. John ends by quoting Jesus at the very end where he says, Jesus told him, yes, I am coming quickly. I'm coming soon. That time is near. Where he's, he's going to return. So how should we live in light of that? Well, on earth, we create a lot of bucket lists, right? Things that we want to do, things that we want to accomplish. What we should spend our life doing is something that will impact eternity and people's eternity. So what is that? Well, they will, people will not understand that they need to become desperate for Jesus without being told what he has done. Why he came. Why he died. You won't find out you're sick unless you're told you're sick. We need to tell others about Jesus. So when I, I was studying this for this sermon this last week, I, I came across a story um, and some of you might know this guy when I say the name, but Nicholas Witten. Nicholas Witten was, he was known for something he did before World War II. And so right before World War II even ever took place, or, or the war started, and this is at the time frame where Germany has started uh, taking over more area and starts putting in their plan of getting rid of all the Jews. Well, on, on a vacation, Nicholas Witten saw a need. Because at one point he was asked, why did you do what you did? And Nicholas responded, I saw a need and so I tried to meet that need. So Nicholas Witten started a plan to rescue kids, Jewish kids, out of German-controlled areas and bring them to England. And it, there, the government had a rule. You have to, you can bring as many over as you want, refugees in, as, as many as you care. 
But you have to find a home, a, a foster family for every single one of those kids. And that's exactly what Nicholas went and did. He would put a, a kid on a bus, or not a bus, a train, and on that train he would write their name down, give them, assign them a number, write their name down, and he would write the foster family that they were going to. He rescued 669 kids. World War II, the day that it started, Nicholas went and had another train that was supposed to leave the station, and it had 250 kids on that train. Because World War II started, that train never left. And actually, it was, if you asked, he was asked, Nicholas Whitten, what was your, maybe your one regret? And he was saying that he couldn't save that 250 and that he couldn't save more. 669, and, and you think he would kind of be like bold, like, hey, this is what I did in my life. And kind of bragging about it, but he never told it really anybody. He, he goes through the war, World War II, and then he gets out of World War II. He gets married. His wife doesn't even know. Think of this would come up in a conversation somewhere. Fifty years goes by. His wife is going through their attic, and she comes across that book filled with 669 names. She gives it to a Holocaust historian, and that Holocaust historian then uh, starts looking up all of these kids who are now you know, 50 plus. And they find a bunch of them. And they bring Nicholas Witten on a show in the 80s, and they were going to surprise him. And so they have him on the show, and the host starts explaining through like, all the, the story. And, then, and at one point, she's like, she stops, and she goes, if your name, you know, it's right here. You're one of the kids that Nicholas Witten, he saved. Would you stand? And, and in the room, there's dozens of people start, start standing. And then she asks, those asked Nicholas Witten to stand up and look around. And he starts tearing up. Like, can you imagine? Like, most of these kids, you just are, he's probably wondering most of his life, where are they? What happened to them? And he's, he's getting to tell, he's getting to see, but not everybody in the room standing yet. And, and so then the host says, hey, if your parents or your grandparents were one of those kids that Nicholas saved, would you stand? The rest of the room stood. And, and as amazing a story as that is, and as much as he should look, be looked at as a hero, how much more important is our eternity and people's eternity? We have people that we say we love, we care about, and we don't know where they're spending eternity. We have people that we work with, that God has put you there at whatever job it is for a reason. We get to look forward to our home. As believers, we get to look forward to the day that we get to, oh man, God, I get to enjoy your, your presence forever in the fullness of that. But there's gonna be people who will never be able to enjoy that. They're gonna be destined for hell. 
And our job as believers, what Paul told us in Philippians 1.21, for me to live on this earth, I have a job to live as Christ. Heaven and hell hang in the balance of us being faithful and going and telling the world, our family, our friends about Jesus. It is why we do everything that we do at Grace. It's why we do Kalahari Retreat every year, getting 2,000 students in a room so that we can worship Jesus and, and have a blast, and we do. But every year, what is the coolest thing is when, when we get to see students indicating, hey, I'm all in. I realize I need to be desperate for Jesus. I'm giving him my life. It's why we do Christmas at Grace. Can you imagine if you invited your coworker to Christmas and all of a sudden they came? Maybe it's the first time they ever came. But because you were just faithful in a simple way and you invited them to church and they gave their life to Jesus, could you imagine that reunion in heaven? <laughs> to live is Christ, to go and tell the world what he has done for us. To die, as Paul said it, to die is to gain because we get to go home. But in living in light of his return, who are you reaching? Who are you telling about Jesus? If you guys would stand with me, let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we, we look forward to the day that we get to go home. God, we get, can almost be looking at our world. It, it feels a little like at times we're homesick. But Lord, because you still have us having breath in our lungs on this earth, our job is not done. Our mission isn't done. So Lord, help us, give us strength, give us boldness to go and tell this world what you have done so that the world can become desperate for you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.